Good afternoon and welcome to the Joint City and School District Select Committee for September 25th, our first regularly scheduled um, committee post-legislative recess. Um, I want to thank the staff at SFGovTV. I'm Jennifer Lowe for filming today and making the transcript of our meeting available online and also recognize our clerk, Derek Evans. I am your chair um, and I am joined today by our Board of Education Commissioners, Hydra Mendoza and Jill Wins. Um, unfortunately, I was just notified prior to the meeting that both Supervisor Farrell and Supervisor Avalos are unable to attend today's meeting, so we do not have quorum to take action on any items. Um, Commissioner Sandra Lee also did inform me last month um, that she would be unable to attend, but we do have quorum from our Board of Education members. So um, first, I would like to apologize to members of our city family um, that who worked so hard to prepare for our committee meeting um, today. But given that everyone has taken the time to come out and um, present on the issue before us and also to speak on this, um, I've worked with the clerks and we are going to call the item um, so that any members of the public who have presentations can still do so. Um, and then um, we can have public comment and that we will have to re-agendize this item for next month's joint select committee um, meeting in order to take action on this item. Um, committee members who did make it here will be sure to um, maybe ask questions during public comment to extend your time period. Um, and then, of course, uh, any members of the public um, can speak after that. Um, so this hearing request, oh, I, I guess we should take roll. Um, maybe take roll call first, please. On the call of roll, Supervisor Kim? Here. Kim present. Supervisor Avalos? Avalos absent. Supervisor Farrell, Farrell noted absent. Super, uh, excuse me, Commissioner Mendoza McDonald, McDonald noted present. Commissioner Fewer, Commissioner Fewer noted absent. Commissioner Wins, Commissioner Wins noted present. Uh, pursuant to Board Rule 3.30, we do not have a quorum. This hearing will be for informational purposes only. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Um, so this hearing request was specifically informed um, by conversations with the school districts on how we can better coordinate both city um, and district resources and strategies for addressing the growing population of un unaccompanied, undocumented youth and children here in San Francisco. Um, this issue was highlighted um, over the last couple of months, both by Commissioner Matt Haney um, on the Board of Education and also Supervisor David Campos here at the Board of Supervisors um, when we recently passed a budget supplemental appropriation um, to afford um, attorney services. Excuse me, Madam Chair. Oh. We do need to call the item. So. Oh. Mr. Clerk, may you please call item number one? Thank you, Madam Chair. Item number one is a hearing requesting presentations from the San Francisco Unified School District, the Department of Public Health, and the Human Services Agency, Family and Children's Services Division, regarding the educational services and other support services being provided to increased numbers of unaccompanied immigrant children arriving in San Francisco. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. I won't repeat my comments from prior, um, but was again uh, highlighted in the recent budget supplemental passed by the board to provide legal services for unaccompanied undocumented youth. Um, 
It is estimated, according to the Department of Homeland Security, that since October 2013, approximately 40,017 Central American youth have fled from their home countries into the United States, a substantial increase from prior years. It's also estimated that the number of children entering the United States this year will exceed 60,000 um, individuals, with the average of 120 to 400 youth crossing the border each day. San Francisco, also known as the city of San Francis, has historically been a city of refuge for those escaping persecution, abuse, and violence. And the percentage of unaccompanied minors at San Francisco International High School, for example, one of our schools here in San Francisco that um, welcomes uh, uh, youth that have recently immigrated into the country, has surpassed 25% of its enrollment, up from 10% in 2009. I'm hoping that on our hearing today we can get a clear sense of the resources available both from the city and also the school district and get clarity on where specific resources should be housed and under whose jurisdiction as well as where specific expertise is most helpful. I want to recognize Lonnie Kant from the mayor's office who I know has been coordinating efforts amongst our city departments and has really targeted this issue as a top priority. And so I wanted to invite Ms. Kent up first um, to start off the hearing. Um, and again, you will have two minutes, um, but you know, we will sure to interject with some questions along the presentation. Thank you. Great. Thank you for having me. Um, so I think maybe to add one wrinkle to this is uh, Sunny was supposed to upload the presentation, so I didn't bring it with me. Oh, um, actually, she doesn't. Did you? Do you have it in a? I don't. So it. Um, you, you normally ask folks to bring it on their own and plug it into the laptop. Yeah. Yeah, she normally doesn't do that. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can also, if you'd like, we can um, go to Ken Epstein and Max Rocha from Department of Public Health first. Would that be better? And I can go grab it? Yeah. Okay. But if you want to make some introductory remarks before DPH's presentation, we're welcome I'll, to do that. I'll, I'll do that. That's fine. Do you have the... Sorry for the confusion. I'll take blame for a rookie mistake. So I'll go ahead and uh, just do a really quick um, introduction. So in response uh, to the request, the work group, uh, the city work group that we've been working together put together this presentation to provide you guys with uh, an overview of what um, the city has done to respond and then also um, have looked specifically at some of the questions of how we are specifically coordinating with the school district. So what I do want to um, talk about before we kind of dive into the details is the way as um, the city family, the way we've come together to talk about this is we talk about this as a developing story. Um, we don't think it's over. It, when we meet from one week to the next, everything change, not everything, but many items change. And so what we've learned is we need to be nimble. Uh, we do expect that we will see between three to 500 children by the end of this calendar year, and so our planning efforts have been around that. Um, 
the direction from the mayor has been that our leaders, advocates, city employees, and members of the community must continue to help these children feel welcome here in San Francisco. This is not something that we just sort of do something once, but we have to continue working on it. Um, and as I said earlier, we just need, we need to stay engaged. This will continue to, um, this situation will continue to develop. Um, I think in November it'll change again once, um, um, once uh, the federal government starts to re-engage. So I just brought some quits, quick stats. Um, California has seen, but by the end of August, uh, from January 1st to August 31st, has seen 4,680 children placed here. 208 of those have been to San Francisco. So we're, we've received between 4 and 5% of um, all placements. The trend has slowed um, in terms of children crossing at the border. So we expect uh, the trend of children coming to the city to also slow down. Um, I just want to talk really briefly about what the mayor has done so far, his leadership and advocacy on this issue. Uh, back in June, he hosted a federal briefing at City Hall for community service providers, philanthropists, and city leadership. This established San Francisco as a city that wanted to be part of the solution, and we were very eager to help. Um, it put us on, in, a good, in a good space with our federal partners. Um, we were one of the first cities that reached out to them in a proactive way to talk about how we can work together as opposed to some of the negativity that they were receiving. Uh, the mayor has also traveled to San Francisco on numerous occasions starting in July to emphasize to state leadership the, port, the importance of coordinated legal representation. This is before the rocket docket was established. He kind of saw this coming, so he was having those conversations earlier on. Um, he's also joined other California mayors across the state and penned a letter to the federal government that he believes all local jurisdictions should be responding proactively and embracing these children as they arrive in their cities. Uh, and he continues to be liaison to state and federal um, representation as well as the White House participating in national forums and also international engagement. So there's constant dialogue going on. What we're hearing from our community members, what we're seeing um, is constantly being translated up. And um, we're just looking forward to hearing something back from them. So um, that's kind of lead, uh, from a leadership and advocacy standpoint, um, kind of what the mayor has been doing. And then he's also asked for city coordination, which is all the folks in this room today. This is really what they've been working really hard, really hard at. Uh, we've had several meetings where it's been mostly to share information and ensure that our resources are being made available to meet the very specific needs of these children in a culturally competent way. So we've been having that dialogue. And again, this is ongoing dialogue. It changes from week to week. Um, in terms of what we need to do, and I think we've, um, we have a good handle on it, but for a while it was just keeping each other informed. We also had a meeting with, uh, our department heads met with legal service providers early on. Uh, we wanted to make sure that if we have resources available to us in the city, that we were making them available to them, uh, which includes um, kind of like how to, how to engage with families that have been through trauma, um, any kind of any other needs that these children might have, and my colleagues here will be able to talk a little bit more about what came out of that meeting. And then finally, um, Adrian will talk about this in a bit, but we also pr uh, created a local resource guide for services that are very specific to these children, not just any services for immigrant children, but um, for this particular surge. So that's been kind of a kickoff to this collaboration, and then all of our um, Collaborators are here to tell you specifically about what they've been working on. 
Quick, just a quick question. I assume um, that the brochures for the youth are in languages. Um, yes. And, and while in the news we primarily talk about Central American youth that are crossing the border unaccompanied um, with adults, um, do we know of youth from other countries that are also coming here in the same fashion? I haven't talked about it specifically with um, the Office of Refugee Resettlement. We've been very focused on this, but that's a good question. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, oh. So um, following uh, the presentation, we do have Ken Epstein and Max, Max Rocha from the Department of ha Public Health. And I just so um, for the members of the public who are following, um, it will then be followed up by a presentation from Sylvia DePorto from Human Service Agency, um, and then Christina Wong, Kimberly Coates, and Thomas Graven from SFUSD, um, and Brian Chu from the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development, and finally Adrian Pond, as was mentioned, from the Office of Civic Engagement and Immigrant Affairs. I also want to note for commissioners, um, that director of DCYF, Maria Sue, um, will also be available um, for questions um, during the presentation. So thank you. Well, thank you, um, commissioners and supervisor, for this hearing. Um, I'm representing Barbara Garcia and the Department of Public Health. Uh, I'm Ken Epstein. I'm director of Children, Youth, and Families. And I have here Max Rocher, the deputy, as well as Christy Dietrich from Family Health Services. So um, I just want to, in the few minutes we have, I just want to start by saying that um, we all know that the, the experience of the refugee children crossing the border starts in their home, continues to their crossing, and then ends up in their stay here. And each of those episodes are filled with health and mental health and other concerns that lead to extraordinary trauma around their crossings. And we've been hearing those stories over and over again. In terms of the health department, um, Barbara Garcia very early on called us together to coordinate our services. And basically, we've put our, our efforts into two main buckets. One has been service coordination, and the other has been service capacity via primary care and other uh, specialty services. And what we mean by that is that the decision was and is that we have a safety net available to youth, the young people, and their families, and we wanted to make sure that they could access it without the barriers or boundaries of being able to access those services. We wanted to make sure we were coordinated. Around that, um, <clears throat> and also I should say that the Health Commission passed an ordinance um, supporting this effort. We've developed a draft resource guide that allows us to understand all of the resources that are available for the young people and their families. The behavioral health has come together, the treatment providers have come together to meet and talk about what best practices are culturally, uh, specifically identifying leads who could provide those services and where they could access those services so we knew that when they came to us we had the best appropriate services. Um, we've developed a first encounter checklist. This is a very important um, item that we didn't really have before because what we know is that a lot of folks will be visiting homes, school districts, nurses, others, and what we discussed is we wanted to have a common set of questions so as we visited homes we can get a common set of data around risk and trauma and other questions. So we've developed a first encounter checklist with ch a maternal child and adolescent health and the newcomers health program and human services agency. Also around risk so we could assess risk in the homes. <clears throat> in terms of primary care, um, 
we have a, a safety net for these young people and when they, you know, they could be at the San Francisco General Hospital in terms of the teen and, and, and health and young adult clinics or the newcomer health program. Both of these programs have lots of experience with young people as well as folks coming uh, with the kinds of experiences they've had. We're very experienced in both treating and triaging and coordinating those services. So we've been meeting together to make sure that we can uh, coordinate as well as we can. Um, and um, the Newcomer Health Program particularly um, is, has a, 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 an incredible expertise in terms of accessing federal benefits and making sure that they have comprehensive health screening. Um, of course, maternal child health, some of the young people coming over um, ha have unfortunately faced um, uh, incredible experiences coming over and some have, are pregnant, uh, some are young moms. Uh, maternal child and adolescent health um, has our prenatal and postpartum care and health care coordination for the youth in the foster care system. So I just wanted to, before I got to Sylvia's presentation, I just wanted to say the other question that I know came up that's not on the, um, is about San Francisco General Hospital. Um, if a kid ends up in, a, in acute care, the same set of services would happen. They'd be referred to a social worker and we'd be able to coordinate their care through our system and our health and our safety net. Thanks. Can, can I ask a follow-up question to that um, question about acute care or when an unaccompanied youth ends up in the ER at a local hospital? Um, how are they, I assume you mentioned that they would get the same treatment as any other individual walking in, but how are they released? How are they released if they're, meaning that if they're unaccompanied at the point they come an, in? Well, they would go, they, they would contact the, a social worker in the hospital and they would, you know, treat the child as they would any other child that was unaccompanied. See. They would assess risk. They would determine whether social services need to be called in or whether there was a parent or a, a guardian to care for them. Mm -hmm. And, and you had mentioned this briefly, but, and, and the youth also are able to access mental health services and counseling. Right. So in terms of mental health, the child and, and youth system has identified Instituto Familia de la Raza, as well as our mission child and family clinic as leads. In terms of instructing us and helping make sure that the services we provide are culturally and linguistically appropriate. And remember that the languages some of these youth speak are not just Spanish. There are mm -hmm. um, indigenous languages to Guatemala as well. And um, so we're we have to make sure we have those um, those services available. And, and from DPH's experience, has has this has the population primarily been from Central America? Do we also have unaccompanied youth that come from other countries as well? Well, in terms of behavioral health, I should say because, as Lonnie said, this is a developing story. Yeah. Youth are not coming into our behavioral clinics at high numbers at this point. Where youth are ending up, you'll hear from the school district you'll hear from legal folks that that's where youth are beginning. It will be over time we'll begin to see more youth as they're identified as having symptoms and issues and trauma from primary care. Mm -hmm. And unfor unfortunately, we're embedded in primary care, so we'll find out a lot of these services and then be able to triage them to our clinics. But answering your question about other youth, we often have other youth in our clinics that have come from many countries and um, certainly are constantly working with um, Lots of folks. Thank you so much. Sure. Good afternoon. I'm Sylvie DiPorto. I'm Deputy Director for Family and Children's Services with the Human Services Agency. 
Child Protective Services provides investigation and intervention services um, to children and their families that are referred for allegations of abuse and neglect. The department is responsible for investigating those allegations, uh, determining if children should remain in the home or be removed from the home on a temporary basis while working with the family to address the safety issues and reunify children if possible. If not, then we secure um, an alternative permanent plan for the children, either through legal guardianship or adoption. All children, regardless of immigration status, who are found to be in need of protection of abuse and neglect are eligible to receive our services throughout, um, throughout our department. It is the legal responsibility of our department to continue to seek out relatives who could serve as a viable placement option for the youth, uh, both within the United States and within their home country. So that would be what our, our staff would do, would be to try to locate relatives and place with them. At this point in time, uh, children, Family and Children's Services has not seen an increase in the number of children coming to our attention. Many of these children are being placed with relatives. Uh, we've been in discussions with the State Department of Social Services, who has indicated that that is where, where the federal government is placing these children as relatives and um, family, other family members. Um, we anticipate, as, as Ken said, that as children remain in this country for some period of time, we may at a later point in time begin to see children coming to our attention. They would come to our attention if there were any allegations of abuse or neglect, or if through mental health services they referred to us because there were issues with the families that they were residing with. Any foster care providers that we utilize are all, all required to complete a state licensing process for background checks and a grounds inspection. And most recently, this requirement also became a standard for all relatives and non-related extended family members. So we are now in the process of, of having a, the same, same standard as we call it for relatives, non-related extended family members, and licensed caregivers. The department is participating with Department of Public Health in the first encounter work group to develop a, a first encounter protocol. I am also participating on a statewide um, work group with the State Department of Social Services, Will Lightborn in discussing this issue, and usually we have about a monthly call. We've provided the um, department's numbers, uh, contact numbers for our child abuse hotline and for our uh, foster parent recruitment line because we've seen an uptake in, in, in people being interested in taking children into their care. Specifically, they're asking about these children, although we're not seeing them come to our attention. Um, I had a quick question. I know that um, the count of families known or defined by SFUSD um, as being homeless is 160 um, students. And I, I'm curious if that also accompanies unaccompanied youth. Uh, okay, so I'll save that question for us School if you, if you don't know that. <laughs> I don't. Um, but how do they um, navigate through obtaining safe and secure shelter through HSA? 
So the unaccompanied minors? Mm -hmm. So if, a, if an unaccompanied minor is referred to us, then we're going to automatically try to determine, um, first and foremost, the age of that child, because our services do go up to age 21. And it's very important that we um, distinguish between a child, uh, a child that's under the age of 18 and a, what we call a non-minor dependent who's between the ages of 18 and 21. Um, we have a number of foster care placements uh, that we would place a child in. Um, we would, while we were placing a child in foster care, we'd also be looking for relative or other extended family members that we could place the child with, um, and we. Yeah, try to try to determine whether that child needed to stay here with family members and receive services and then connect them to services. What do they do while you're looking for relatives or they're under or you're looking for a foster care placement? So they would go to one of our foster homes and okay. um, we would enroll them in school if they were under the age of 18, enroll them in school. If they're over the age of 18, we have an independent living program that we would refer them to where they would begin working with them on a number of things, trying to determine what their educational mm -hmm. status is, whether they could work um, and try to find them employment, determine what their health needs are, if there are any mental health needs. So that program would work with them if they're over 18. And in between 18 and 21, they, they qualify for our regular adult shelter services? Yes, they do. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Oh, I'm, I apologize. Commissioner Wins has a question. Mr. Porto, thank you. Sorry. Is this on? Yes. Uh, could you tell me how many students, uh, how many unaccompanied minors kids in this group are in foster care? We don't really have, I can't tell you the exact number of unaccompanied minors we have right now. We don't generally get a large number of unaccompanied minors. So it's not, it's not a frequent thing that happens. For I understand, us. but we're talking about a, a emerging new phenomenon. So right. if we, so we don't have any idea how many there are. We have not, we have not received any in the recent I would say six months. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Hi, Ms. Wong. Let's see. Good afternoon. My name is Christina Wong. I'm a special assistant to the superintendent. And I'm joined by Kimberly Coates, who's the executive director of school health, and also Salvador Lopez Barreras and Jan Walker, who is representing pupil services. Um, they're both available to answer any questions after this presentation. Um, so the unaccompanied immigrant children has been part of our school community for a number of years. And while we don't keep track of how many are actually identified at this point that are unaccompanied immigrant children, we do keep track of how many newcomer students that we have from Central American countries and other countries of origin. So in looking at the data before you, you will notice that from 11-12 school year, we had 102, and the next school year we had pretty much a 50% increase. And then from 12-13 to 13-14, we had approximately a 67% increase. At this time, we've only been in session for um, over about over a month, and we already have 205 students from Central American countries. 
In looking at the data that was available to us um, during the summer months, and this has been updated, right now we have a total of 185 students in the San Francisco area. At the time when we did have this data, we had a total of 173. What was important for us was that we, we needed to find out the school age and the, the different school levels that um, were included in the number of um, unaccompanied children that were coming or recorded in ORR. And as you can tell here, that a majority, an overwhelming majority, are at the high school level. We also had data by zip code. And you can see here by neighborhood, there is a percentage from Mission Bernal area, but there is a significant percentage from Ingleside, Bayview, and Visitation Valley. That's basically our southeast sector of the city. Knowing this, and these are the newcomer pathways, we have 12 newcomer pathways across the different levels. Um, at the elementary level, we have standalone sites at Chinese Education Center, Mission Education Center, and at the middle school level, we have newcomer pathways within the comprehensive middle school. So at Everett, Francisco, Marina, and Visitation Valley, we have um, a newcomer strand there so that students are able to, to receive the intensive support but also take other classes as well. And very similarly to high school, we have newcomer pathways at Galileo, Lincoln, Marshall, Mission, and SF International, and, uh, and also Washington High School. Excuse me, Ms. Wong, I, yes. just because I don't remember, where is the location for Chinese Education and Mission Education Center? Chinese Education is right across from Portsmouth Square in Chinatown, and Mission Ed Center is in the heart of Noe Valley. So knowing this, we really needed to, knowing that most of the school-aged children were at the high school level, and that they were also um, mostly residing in the southeast sector, we did begin to increase capacities at the high school level. So even before school started, we increased capacity at Marshall High School, which is located in the southeast sector, so that um, the students that were unaccompanied would have access to a newcomer pathway. Uh, as well as we also looked at the other high schools and started, um, we're making plans to increase those capacities as well. This, um, this uh, represents the system of support that we have for newcomers at the high school level. So when, as a newcomer, after they're assigned at the Educational Placement Center, they meet with a school counselor at their, at their school and receive academic orientation, placement, um, and any type of resources and referrals. The school counselor then works very closely with the newcomer pathway teacher to identify any type of transitional academic support and, of course, get the intensive English language development that is germane to the design of a newcomer pathway. Um, as the newcomer pathway teachers get to know the students and really um, better understand what their needs uh, and services that they would benefit, they are referred to the high school wellness program where they will get both the physical and mental health services, resources and referrals to legal, housing, and other social services. One thing that's really also um, really great about the wellness programs is that they have significant school partnerships. Um, so in, in, this, in the district, we do have school partnerships with CYC and also Instituto. Um, both organizations provide newcomer after-school programs, peer support, leadership development, uh, and these, both of these programs are funded by DCYF. We also have partnerships with um, legal services, like the San Francisco um, Immigration Legal Education Network, um, that includes CADESN, legal services for children, um, and other service providers. 
And so this represents the system of support that any newcomer EL, even though there is a, a cycle that's represented here, any newcomer EL would ha be, ha be able to access it at any point. Um, part of one of the services that is under the wellness program umbrella is what we call the Families and Youth in Transition Homeless Program. So under the McKinney-Vinto Act, um, transition homeless students are those who lack a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence um, and may reside in a shelter, motel, hotel, temporary um, housing, abandoned building, or temporary foster care. Of course, these students have educational rights that include immediate enrollment, continue in a school that they're intending, receive transportation to school, participate in all programs, um, and they, are, you know, of course, can contact the district liaison to resolve any type of dispute. What's really important is that these students also have some critical services that are available to them. Um, they may receive assistance with school enrollment, advocate on behalf of um, the, uh, the transition of students, handle any type of educational disputes, and offer tutoring, which is something that we know that a lot of the unaccompanied immigrant children um, are really trying to benefit from. They get free breakfast and lunch. Um, they're provided with uniforms, backpacks, and school supplies, and also, of course, resources and referrals to other agencies. So we've done um, two different things in terms of preparation thus far. In the classroom, we have gathered the available data to really project and anticipate the number of newcomer unaccompanied immigrant children that are enrolling in the district. We've increased the newcomer seats at the high schools. Um, and in the multilingual pathways department that oversees the professional development for the newcomer pathways, we are going to be developing professional learning communities where, so that the teachers are prepared to serve these students. Many of these students are students with interrupted formal education with significant gaps in education. And so it really is, really has been beneficial to allow teachers the opportunity to learn some of the best practices. In terms of support services, we do have a cross-department working group that has evaluated the district's newcomer system of support and have made significant enhancements. We recently just hired a certificated social worker that's going to be based out of school health, and she will be coordinating critical legal and social services for the unaccompanied immigrant children and provide any professional development for the newcomer support staff within each of the different pathways. We're also going to be offering newcomer support to a number of our schools that actually have been receiving newcomer students even though they're not a formal pathway. We're going to be continuing to collaborate with other city departments that you're going to be hearing from today, um, especially around legal, housing, and social services. Um, and we've been really fortunate that the philanthropic, um, the foundation community has been really um, supportive of this, and they, we've already received funds to support the position, the coordinator position, and also funds to support our teachers and our support staff. Can I ask a few questions on on this. So when you say cross department, are you talking about kind of office of curriculum and? Right. Okay. So, yeah, in, um, from school health, uh -huh. from multilingual pathways department, um, from 
you know, in terms of like all the folks that are represented in that system of support I described, all of those representatives are around the table really making sure that the services are provided. And I think the, the biggest thing that we're going to be doing in the next couple of months is really developing guidelines and protocols so that wherever um, there are newcomer students, teachers, and support staff would have access to the information and the resources needed. And for the new um, coordinator, and I'm glad that um, this coordinator has started, um, I guess, are they going to be interfacing directly with um, our unaccompanied minor students? Are they working with the teachers? I mean, what is kind of, you know, their role going to look like in connecting they're going to be doing services? Both. Okay. Yeah, they're going to be doing both. And how, how do you expect that they'll be able to work with the city and connecting them to other services, whether it's housing um, or the other services that you had mentioned? I think that a lot of the what you heard today about developing resources, um, that's going to be really key. Um, this coordinator can be the conduit to ensure that those resources are provided for these um, children and their sponsors so that they're aware of the types of services that the city is providing. Okay. Mr. Chu. Good afternoon, committee members. Brian Chu, Director of Community Development with the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. Um, for the legal services portion, um, uh, many of you uh, know that the Board of Supervisors and the Mayor recently allocated $1,063,800 per year over a two-year period to support uh, legal services to represent both uh, these unaccompanied children and their family members. That figure was based on an estimate of three to 500 children, uh, an annual caseload of approximately 40 to 50 uh, cases per attorney, uh, approximately $100,000 per attorney. We are hoping uh, within the month of uh, October in the next two weeks to issue a request for proposals to secure um, one provider or a set of providers. I uh, think that it will probably be a, a collaborative proposal with a lead organization um, that will house probably eight to ten attorneys uh, with the lead agency providing uh, a lead attorney that will be responsible for the service coordination, uh, liaison with the immigration court, uh, with the school district, with legal service providers, and the city uh, that will, on a regular basis, convene providers, coordinate services, coordinate referrals uh, to attorneys, leverage pro, pro bono representation because we uh, feel that we need to uh, bring in the resources of the private bar uh, in order to maximize the leverage of these dollars um, and possibly to ensure the provision of services. I mean, right now we've got the money set aside for two years. Um, there may be children that need representation. In addition, we realize that uh, while this uh, funding from the city is generous, um, it really is targeting only those uh, San Francisco children and their families, um, and we've had a number of discussions with the advocates about uh, the need to uh, encourage other counties to similarly provide support to the 80% of the children and families that are in the docket that are not going to be necessarily served uh, by these dollars. Um, we hope to have this 
program up and running in November. Um, we've already begun discussions uh, with representatives of the legal services community and the social service providers um, from which you have, who have already begun working with these children and families. Um, we realize that it's going to be um, a heavy lift. Um, this particular area of immigration requires specialized expertise, especially in asylum, U visas, which are the visas for crime victims, T visas, which are uh, victims of trafficking, and those uh, juveniles that may be eligible for special immigrant juvenile status. Uh, we're hoping to leverage the tremendous expertise we have here in San Francisco. Uh, I think that it will be a uh, really a uh, a pilot program which we hope can be used in other jurisdictions for these same kinds of services and we have confidence that with a high degree of expertise with legal service providers in San Francisco that we'll be successful with these efforts. Ultimately we don't know our success rate with this program. We assume that we'll be successful given the strength of our arguments, but time will tell. We're happy to um, be able to you know, work with the board and the mayor's office to give an update on how successfully we are on uh, uh, preventing deportation and allowing for reunification as much as mm -hmm. may be possible. So, Mr. Chair, I had a question. I know that you know, while the surge of unaccompanied minors has, um, is new for the city, it's certainly not a completely new phenomenon. And so what has been our success rate in the past in preventing deportations with the existing legal services and pro bono legal services that we had? Uh, I'll have to get back to you on that question. I know our office um, has not historically provided funding for representation in those specific areas. I know that there are some organizations such as uh, Asian Pacific Islander Legal Outreach which has specialized, for example, in, in asylum cases. Um, so I can uh, get back to you in terms of uh, the specific nature. I think because um, these kinds of cases represent, um, how will I say, the success of these kinds of cases often depend on the political landscape um, involved with the countries of origin. Um, so past success may or may not uh, resemble success in these cases, but um, I'll check back with our providers and get back to you with an answer on that. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the appropriate question for you or for someone else, but um, I know this issue came up several years ago when I was a school board member sitting on the select committee, but it's the concept of youth in multiple systems. Um, so youth that are in juvenile justice, SFUSD, and DPH, and, and how we were having trouble sharing information, largely due to privacy, you know, privacy factors and others. And I, I see the same potential issue here. And I'm curious what, we can, what we're going to do about that. I mean, it doesn't seem like we have a clear sense of the actual numbers of unaccompanied minors in San Francisco, although just looking at some of the data from SFUSD, maybe 300, um, at least known youth. Are, are we going to be able to, you know, have a master database that tracks these young people? Because I, I would hate to kind of, you know, duplicate services or, or have folks not sharing information that could really help these young, like these two to three hundred young people really be successful in San Francisco um, because I think the way, you know, the odds are so set up against them right now, um, you know, they're not likely to be successful given the factors that, you know, that are before us and 
you know, how we can predict from the past. So in order to prevent that, how, how can we actually aggregate everyone's data and have people working and talking to one another about the same group of youth that everyone is serving? And if, sorry that you're the last presenter, so I, that question's being asked to you, but it, it's certainly really for all the departments. No, uh, I think that's an excellent question, and I, I can't uh, necessarily speak for my colleagues, but um, you know, I can speak in terms of our departments uh, looking at this issue in a slightly different context when we were working, for example, with Hope SF when we were trying to coordinate efforts. Uh, uh, I will say this is an especially a tricky population to aggregate data because you have um, HIPAA confidentiality requirements on the health side, you have minors which have special protection under the school district side, you have legal service providers which also um, have confidentiality requirements regarding their provision of service. So you've picked, um, and you have individuals who just by the nature of their status here are um, less inclined to disclose information. So you've perhaps targeted the most difficult group of people to try and share information with across all of these service areas. That being said, um, you know, we will certainly be working uh, with uh, the children um, and their parents uh, to try and gain the consent to share information to the degree possible. Um, again, in this situation, you have unaccompanied minors, and it's um, not clear to me who would give consent on their behalf to be able to share information across the health department, the school district, and legal service providers. Uh, Are you looking at Ms. Wong to come up as well? I, I, I am curious. It would be I'm so sure powerful we if now. we could have, yes. you know, the same youth's teacher, you know, um, you know, mental health counselor, Hauser, actually able to talk to one another and be able to share information. So it, it's going to really take a village to make sure these youth are successful. And if we're not sharing information and they're siloed kind of in identities, um, then I, I'm worried that we're not going to get there. So I share your concern, and I have been digging around around that question too. So I have been working with the federal government to try to get them to actually give us the names of these kids and the locations of where they're being placed. Because mm -hmm. the one unique thing about this surge um, is that they are coming through, they're, you know, they're, kind of, they're turning themselves over at the border, um, or the majority of them, or at least not all of them. And they are taken, uh, our health services system takes them in, and they get placed. So the federal government actually knows the name of these children and the addresses of where they're being delivered and their age. Um, and the only information that they have made available to some folks is the zip code and the, the zip code for which these children are being placed and their age. So you, I've, I share the aggravation because I feel like we have a really great head start, the fact that they're actually being tracked from the minute they come across the border, but we can't get access to that information. So kind of what Brian was saying, this is a difficult group. So once they arrive here, there, you know, there is a network that kind of embraces these children and we can start to connect them to services, but to get that network then to share information with this population that, as I ask these very same questions, they're very vulnerable. They feel afraid of, of giving that kind of, so it's, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be asking the question and still trying to figure it out. Uh huh. It actually, I mean, Mr. Chu brought up a good point, which is that can minors consent to the sharing of their well, information? Well, you know, I think as Ms. No. Wong said, that um, uh, for those who do have their parents here, we can get 
uh, parental consent right. or have the sponsor consent uh-huh. uh, if they're living with uh, a family now. Um, you know, getting back to what Ms. Kent said, I do think that probably one of the the most consistent ways of identifying these individuals will be when they when we receive assignments from the immigration court because everybody on that docket you know will be identified to the legal service provider and at that time i imagine that um, all of these attorneys will be well aware of the support systems that will be offered through the school district and the department of public health and at that time you know we'll do our best um, to have that individual consent to having um, a, a structured support available to them thank you mr chu and I apologize, you're not the last presenter. We, we do have Adrian Pond here from the Office of House, um, Civic Engagement and Immigrant Affairs. Thank you, Ms. Pond, for being here. Thank you, Supervisors and Commissioners. Um, I just have three slides, um, and I'm just going to skip to um, what we're doing, uh, particularly relative to the unaccompanied children. Um, we've been working for the past few months with our nonprofit and philanthropic partners in San Francisco and Washington, D.C., including the Migrant Policy Institute, AILA, uh, ILRC, and a number of other organizations. Um, and I think, um, uh, Chair Kim, you put it right, uh, you hit it right on the button that data and, and having uh, numbers and names is extremely difficult. Um, data collection is going to be really important for San Francisco, especially if the city is going to um, tap into any state or federal funding that may become available. Um, if we can forward to the next slide, I think we're one slide behind here. I think. Yeah, here we go. Okay, so um, at the request of the mayor's office, we did create a bilingual website page to house resources and information for unaccompanied children. We created a bilingual resource guide as well as included translated materials provided to families by the San Francisco Immigration Court. Um, we previously translated a number of city websites in multiple languages, including um, the ACA website, Victims Portal, and information on citizenship, DACA. Uh, and as all of this starts to evolve, we'll continue to provide updated information and translations on the um, unaccompanied uh, children webpage. And we hope to work with our grantee, Mayab, to also have this translated, not in only in, we have it in Spanish, but uh, we need it translated in Mayan languages as well. Um, and then our community ambassadors conduct daily on-the-street multilingual community outreach and education about city programs, including Healthy SF, 311, um, the city ID card. So they're going to continue to do that in language. Um, also, we're coordinating our efforts with uh, the mayor's office, 311, city departments, our Dream SF uh, DACA grantees, Pathways to Citizenship grantees, and then also the Language Access Network. Um, so, uh, just so you know, we've been um, we're in year two of our uh, Pathways to Citizenship initiative, which is to try to get as many of the hundred uh, estimated 100,000 legal permanent residents in San Francisco on. Um, naturalized and uh, thus far a uh, this collaboration of uh, community-based organizations has uh, reached over 5,000 uh, San Franciscans who are eligible they've processed 1,500 new applications for citizenship and then the DACA grantees have reached um, almost all of the 5,000 estimated um, 
DACA-eligible youth and processed 600 applications. Um, and it's, uh, I have to commend the uh, Unified School District because without uh, Christina and the school district's partnership, we wouldn't be able to get any of this done, um, and as well as Lonnie. We also have 14 DACA, uh, Dream SF DACA fellows on board this year, thanks to DCYF um, for funding it, and they're doing outreach and education to their own constituency and working with our partner CBO. So we actually placed them in the CBOs to help with the outreach. Um, and then, of course, we're partnering with the Immigrant Rights Commission, continuing to conduct education and outreach on sanctuary city and immigrant rights. And then uh, just a little bit about uh, we were asked recently by one of the Senate offices to provide information on um, immigrants and the refugee population in San Francisco. And I thought this was kind of an odd question coming from them because I assumed they had all the information, but they didn't. Um, so most you probably know most of this information. Over 25% of the country's immigrants uh, live in California, and over one out of every three San Francisco residents is immigrant. Uh, there are an estimated 30,000 or more uh, undocumented immigrants in San Francisco. And while only one in 14 children in San Francisco is an immigrant, uh, more than half, 54%, have at least one immigrant parent, and 34% of the households are headed by an immigrant. Um, since the Refugee Act of 1980, approximately 32,451 refugees have been received by San Francisco. 80% of the participants in the Human Service Agency's Refugee Cash Assistance Program, RCA, are asylees, and most of the current refugee arrivals are families that are aided by CalWORKs. And finally, um, when it comes to um, where you have some uh, gaps and disconnects, about 75% of all immigrants in San Francisco have arrived uh, you know, since 1980 and the proportion of linguistic isolation in San Francisco immigrant-headed households in which no one over the age of 14, I apologize, there's a, a little error on the slide, uh, no one over the age of 14 speaks English at all very well, is the highest of any region in California. We're at 35%. Um, there's no other place that's higher than that. And then there are economic gaps for full-time employment, income, home ownership rates, high school diplomas. Um, those gaps are closing for immigrants more slowly in San Francisco if you compare us to other parts of the state. And then there are, uh, of course, critical workforce issues that need attention, particularly around English language skills for children and adult uh, ESL education. Um, and then, of course, the high income inequality overall in San Francisco. There's a shrinking middle income population. Um, and the city's high cost of living are driving the out-migration of our immigrants, um, particularly low-wage earners, out of the city. Um, so these factors, along with the uh, language barriers, are limiting the upward path for immigrants. Thank you, Ms. Pond. I had just had one quick question, and then we have a question from Maria Sue. Um, you had mentioned community ambassadors being out on the streets. Yes. And so I am aware that we have them in the Bayview neighborhood and mid-market um, neighborhood. Are they in other neighborhoods as well, or is, are they just working in those neighborhoods? And if they see a young person or identify someone that might be an unaccompanied, undocumented youth, do they reach out to them? How does that work? 
Okay, well, the uh, community ambassadors are currently operating in three areas of the city. So District 6, mm -hmm. um, along, you know, in the Tenderloin, along Mid-Market, uh, the Mid-Market Corridor, right. and up, uh, up further in, uh, I guess, uh, Upper Market. Uh -huh. And then in D10, along uh, Fizz Valley and Bayview. Right. And then also uh, we have a uh, pilot project in the Mission, around okay. the 16th um, emission BART station. So they are, um, you know, as they see the population, they're providing information not just on um, DACA or citizenship, but also uh, Health BSF, 311, how to access, you know, how to apply for city ID card, so number of city programs mm -hmm. and services. So they're all trained on how to do this, and do they actively search out young people, or do they wait for the young people to approach them? Uh, how does that interaction take place? Oh, good question. So the community ambassadors really provide information on all of the city programs right. and services. No, it's really aware. the uh, Dream SF fellows who are doing the specific outreach to the I target see. population. Because I see. many of our Dream uh, SF fellows, most of them were unaccompanied minors themselves. That's amazing to hear. I, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that there was another kind of segment to the community ambassador programs. It's amazing to hear. And actually, just in D6, I, I, didn't, I wasn't aware about 16th admission, so it's great to hear that we're piloting a program there. How far in the Tenderloin do they go into? Every day we're asked to go deeper and deeper, so we're around Bodecker Park. Okay, and the, Eddie Street. The perimeter, you know, we're at the tip, the tip of the Tenderloin where it meets market, um, and we're going, uh, I think we're going to be sitting down with the uh, Captain Chernish to talk about is there a defined route uh, yeah. And where are the hot spots? Uh, because we're spreading them pretty thin right now, and, and so we really have to be strategic about where we're placing them. Our office would love to meet with you as well on that issue. We would love to do okay. that. Great. Okay, great. Thank you, Ms. Pond. Thank you. Okay, um, so I know that uh, we have the head of our Department of Children, Youth, and Families here today. Maria Sue, thank you for sticking around. We, we just had one question, um, Commissioner Mendoza. Oh, well, you know the question. Why? <laughs> there we go. Um, so, um, so, Maria, I was just curious how DCIF is involved in in um, kind of the connection to all of this work, particularly with the funding that you do with our our children and families. Yeah. So, thank you. Um, Supervisors and Commissioners, uh, good evening. Um, my name is Maria Sue. I'm the Director for the Department of Children, Youth, and Their Families. And it's actually our pleasure to be partnering with all of these departments here. We actually do not do um, the direct services ourselves, um, but we uh, partner with them to fund all the really great work that they are doing um, in their in their respective um, offices and departments. So specifically for the school district, we uh, partially fund with private dollars the that new position, the unaccompanied program coordinator. Um, so we're really happy that we can do that to support the school district around coordination um, and outreach to the young people. With the Office of Civic Engagement and Immigrant Affairs, uh, through Director Pon, we are funding the DACA support work, which is to um, partner with several nonprofit agencies to provide the legal aid um, and legal services to ensure that uh, young people and families who want to apply for um, status, for DACA status, they can. 
Uh, we also partially fund the DREAMers program that Director Pond was also referring to, um, which is the first of its kind um, in, in supporting young people who, um, who are undocumented to have um, trainings and career awareness um, and opportunities to, uh, to, to have a job and to, to learn skills. Um, on top of that, we partner with, uh, we fund uh, many nonprofit agencies that provide monolingual services to all of our communities. So all of our programs um, are found throughout the city. Uh, ranging from childcare programs to after-school programs to teen programs, family support programs, uh, and youth employment programs. And in all of our programs, we allow young people, um, regardless of status, to participate in, in the programs and services that we provide. Um, I do know that we're working with the mayor's office to tally how much funding that is and how many young people we're, we're reaching. Um, and so hopefully we'll have that information um, for, for you soon. So I'm, I'm going to ask the question again and about the how we can share and collect data. And I know it's a really tough issue, but I'm wondering where we can house that under. Can that be under DCYF? Can they help kind of herd <laughs> um, everyone, um, all the departments? Because um, I know everyone wants to do it, but I'm just wondering kind of can we look to a department to kind of help make sure that coordination is happening and we're figuring out how to do that really difficult but really important work. Uh, thank you for the question. Um, <laughs> you know, I do agree that coordination, making sure that the data that we're collecting reflect the type of services that we are implementing on the ground um, and that we're, we're using our, our, our different um, resources appropriately. I think, um, I think uh, Director Chu made a very correct and accurate statement that particularly for this population, it's a little bit harder, but it doesn't mean that it's impossible. I think that us need, uh, coming together as a body of government providers, um, department heads and departments, as well as nonprofit agencies, um, to, to just think about how do we address this system and address this issue um, might be the first start to this. Um, I know that our nonprofit agencies have a direct link to the, the young people and their families, um, and maybe that's, a, that's where we start to make sure that we're coordinating appropriately. Um, I like the idea of, of uh, connecting the, uh, the, 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 uh, the bits and pieces of data that we're getting from the feds uh, to perhaps some of our other services um, that's through Department of Public Health or uh, through the Human Services Agency, just so that we can at least get an, an idea of um, the, you know, the, the, the types of kids that we're serving so we can at least narrow down um, what they need. But right now we don't have a very good answer for that. And DCYF would love to be a partner in that. We can convene meetings and convene folks to come to the table to have this conversation, but I do have to say that um, Ms. Kent has been a phenomenal convener of department heads and um, service providers, particularly around this issue. Um, so yeah. the mayor has shown great leadership in this Yeah, work. no, I, I appreciate that um, we have someone that's going to be able to coordinate all the departments, but I, I imagine that ultimately this database is going to have to be housed somewhere under a department. Um, I, I can't imagine Ms. Kent will have that capacity, although great if you do. <laughs> um, but I imagine it will have to be eventually housed somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. So that was really where that question was directed. 
Thank you so much, Ms. Sue. Thank you so much. Um, Commissioner Wins, did you have questions? Have Commissioner Wins. Um, I, I don't know who can answer this question, probably nobody, but what I really want to know is, is um, the question about, the I'm worried about people just getting lost too. somewhere. So what happens, uh, as you said, the, the kind of uniqueness here is that most of these kids coming across the border are turning themselves in to the mm -hmm. border authorities, to the federal authorities. So theoretically, they've got their names and they have, some, they have them on some list. And presumably, since all or most of them are in the legal system, they, the immigration should be tracking where they are, right? They ought to be able to tell us where they've gone, who's here, and do we have a way to figure out if we know about all those people? I, I'm, what I fear is that, you know, I don't want to, is that other people are afraid, people, family members, uh, friends, whoever might, uh, who may themselves not be appropriately documented and, and you know, I want to, from our point of view, we need to make sure that all these kids are in school and that they understand that we have services for them, that we have language programs, that we are not only dedicated to serving them, but uh, have things available for them. So is there some way to, I mean, that's, that's the I, sort of uh, Supervisor Kim's question. Can we check and make sure that everybody we should be serving has contacted us in some way or exists in the system somewhere? So, um, first of all, it's really, this is a good conversation. This is what needs to happen. This is part of what we are sending up the chain just in terms of when we're talking to national leadership on this. Um, the um, the short answer is if we I mean if we want to do that we do it on our own. Um, what, sadly, what I've learned is once the children are placed, they get a court date and then the tracking is it, the, the, the 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 tracking stops. So you know it, there's this whole process. It goes from Homeland Security to HSS and then it kind of drills down into the Office of Refugee Resettlement. And then once that placement happens, they're done. The only way that the tracking is really going to be comprehensive is for the children that when they come to the country and they do and they don't have a placement so 85 to 90 percent of the kids that are coming are actually coming with a name of a family member that's here and they're getting that placement the 10 to 15 percent that aren't they, they there is an rfp out um, a couple of our local community-based organizations went after this funding to house these kids so for that, for that population, we're going to have data because this, they'll, they'll still be connect, they'll still be connected to services, and the state or the the federal government's going to want to monitor the outcomes. But locally, um, I think Mr. Chu referenced this is you know maybe through legal services, you know, as children show up to court, we can kind of capture the names there. Um, as our community-based organizations um, go after funding that we make available, we can also build into the contract, um, you know, require, reporting requirements that have this follow-up. So we can, you know, we can. There, there are some things that we can do. But, but when you, but 85 to 90 percent of these children who are get through the beginning of the federal system and then are assigned to hopefully the family member with whose name they came across the border. That's it. Nobody, we don't have any way of knowing who they are. Nobody's telling the city and county of San Francisco this many children have been placed with relatives who 
have identified, you know, with an address in San Francisco? They'll give us a number, but they won't give us the names or the addresses. So it's, um, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Um, I, this, I've been barking up that tree. And what they tell, I mean, the reason is, which sort of makes sense, is not all local jurisdictions are as welcoming as we are um, and have the intentions that we do in terms of doing the right thing. Okay, so, so if, does the number match the number that we? <laughs> yes. Okay. So the numbers that they're providing, uh, so two, gosh, I'm remembering off the top of my head, to date, I think, no, through the end of August, so from January 1st to August 31st, we've received about 208 kids formally placed here. And the number from the school district, I think, was 240, was it? Yeah. Um, or those other? Or of new enrollees? 200? Okay. So using, using the school district as a gauge, I think, I think it's pretty close. Um, I, to, to help myself sleep better at night, because I have that same question, I take some comfort in the fact that this surge, um, what is unique about it is that children are turning themselves okay. over, unlike kind of historically they don't. So I feel like, in a sense, we have less to worry about because of that kind of small piece, um, which, you know, it's not a good situation, but we do have that. I'm a little, thank you. I'm a little more worried about the people that they're coming to. It, you know, that we've set up here, um, and by the way, I don't know if anybody wanted it, but our staff provided me with copies of the resolution that the Board of Education passed. Uh, but um, so because this is a crisis, clearly, as demonstrated here today, we've set up a public and publicly funded community-based infrastructure for the kids that we know have been coming across the border. But what we don't know is what kind of service or relationship anybody has with the family members to whom they're going. So that's the little vacuum there that could cause people to fall through the cracks. If we don't know who they are and we don't know to whom they're going, we can't follow up and make sure that they're served. So my question on that one has been, what is their, um, what is their evaluation requirements when they're looking at spon these sponsor families? So the children are coming across the border. They're put in temporary shelter for 30 days, and it's during that time when they're kind of looking for the family sponsors and doing some sort of evaluation. And I don't, that's, I think that when I get that information, I can forward it to you. And, and then presumably, eventually, but it may, from what I've been reading in the papers and hearing on the radio, it could take months, maybe years, for all of these cases to be adjudicated for kids to get into court. That would be the when we find out. So let me just. Um, so if, it, if it's you know eight kids or four kids, and then as it goes up in the next couple of years, it turns out to be thirty or forty or fifty kids, and then we find out in two years when all the cases come before the immigration court that some of these kids have not been in school for that amount of time, that would be bad. <laughs> I understand it's nobody's intention, but I, I just see the potential there for that's the, that's the big crack that people could fall through. So the one way that we're trying to address that um, through the services that my colleagues talked about today, so the Human Services Agency, they, they respond to... Um, they respond to when you, I mean, you can call them and they can come out and they can do an evaluation if there is, uh, if there's, if you suspect that there's something fishy going on. Um, and then 
the Department of Public Health, you know, when we met with legal service providers, they said, you know, a lot of these children have been through trauma, um, and a lot of these children might not be in the, um, the best situation. And so just having those folks in the room, we were able to make that connection so the legal service providers know that they can go to HSA if they're suspicious of something, and DPH can come out to them and provide some type of training on how to work with children that have been through traumatic situations. So although we're not getting these names and addresses, which would make us feel a lot better, we are taking the available resources that we do have to catch these kids in the way that we're not able to get in front of the issue. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. So if there are no other questions or comments from commissioners, um, we're at this time going to um, further open up um, for public comment. Um, so I do have one card. I have Luis Avalos. And if any other member of uh, the public would like to speak, please do come up. Okay, so Commissioner, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you, Supervisor Kim. So good afternoon. My name is Luis Avalos. I am the District 5 Youth Commissioner. I've come here today to show my earnest support and gratitude for this hearing. I'd like to thank all the city departments and agencies who have come out today to show and share this valuable information regarding such an important issue that personally hits me closely to home. I myself am undocumented, and, you know, just hearing this hearing, I know it might prove troublesome to figure out all the different, you know, execution tactics and all the different procedures that will go into implementing all these support services. But that being said, I know it's not impossible. I myself, regardless of being undocumented, have received a lot of support services from the city and county since I moved here. You know, when it came time for me to apply for DACA, I received free consultation and guidance from lawyers thanks to Dolores Street Community Services. I have a vision disability and I received a lot of aid from SFUSD's Low Vision and Blind Student Education Program. And I also received a lot of good quality health care through Healthy Kids San Francisco. And with that being said, I would like nothing more for all these resources to be given to these undocumented children just as they were given to me. You know, San Francisco is often seen as a city for its innovation and its uniqueness in addressing all the unmet needs of its population. And I think this is a very great example of what it can do for all these unaccompanied minors that are facing such, such hardship. So with that being said, I ask you, please continue supporting these undocumented children. Let's show the rest of the nation what Plyler versus Doe can really do for someone and what it truly means to be a sanctuary city. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Are there any other members of the public that would like to speak? Seeing none, public comment is now closed. Um, Commissioner Mendoza. So thank you. Um, I just want to thank everyone that presented today. And um, I have to say, having been part of the conversations early on, it was really great to see the collective um, both wisdom and um, desire to, to help bring in the young people that are coming to San Francisco and finding ways to really support um, them being part of our community. And it, it all happened really quickly in terms of, um, you know, our ask to the feds on what it is that we can do to ensure that we're protecting um, to, uh, and understanding everything that's happening to um, to our unaccompanied minors. And I just really want to appreciate all the efforts that were put into that because I've seen you guys come together time and time and time again under the leadership of, of Lonnie Kent from the mayor's office who has, um, you know, kind of got thrown into this in a way that um, she didn't expect it to, uh, to kind of come through. 
and to gain the the momentum that it has and to see all of you come together the way you have has just really been tremendous. Um, and I think, you know, from the school district side, just knowing that we were going to be receiving, um, you know, potentially two to 400 students uh, all at once or in dribbles or how it was um, we were going to be accepting the students, there was a, a part of me who was a little bit nervous, but a, a part of me that was really proud um, because we do serve so many undocumented students already and we don't um, categorize them and we don't, you know, think about, oh, are you, are you or are you not? Um, you come into our system and you're served like anyone else. And so I think as a district, we were really prepared to, um, to accept any of the new students that came in, but I'm comforted in knowing that the services that we're setting up, um, because there are some very unique um, challenges that that our, our uh, unaccompanied youth will be experiencing. And I have to say, as a parent of two kids, there is no way I'm ever going to understand um, how our young people make it from one place to the next. And... Um, and, and knowing that there is going to be a tremendous amount of emotion and trauma that they'll be experiencing and that we as a city have come together to ensure that they can be as stable as possible is, um, is just really heartwarming. And so, um, you know, on behalf of the school board, I just want to really thank you for the great work. And it really, you know, again, just highlights who we are as a city. Um, and the work that we can do together. And, and I'm really looking forward to um, ensuring that the young people that come through San Francisco and stay in San Francisco are well supported. So again, just thank you for your tremendous work. Um, I also want to thank all the departments that are here today. We will be continuing this item, but we won't ask everyone to come back um, in October, and we'll I'll make sure that our office reaches out um, to all the departments um, regarding the continuance. Well, we can't even continue the hearing, but um, uh, the hearing being heard again in October. Um, I, I really appreciate the work. It's so clear that every department is incredibly passionate um, about making sure that we are making a difference um, um, for for this group of young people that are here and that's growing here in San Francisco. Um, I really, really am going to push on the, the data sharing issue. I know that we're still working it out on even the juvenile justice, DPH, school district level, um, but I just think we have to come to a solution really, really soon on it. Um, because I think we all know that um, it is very hard to succeed in the city under the circumstances that these young people are coming. And of course, there will be young people like our commissioner um, who will succeed, um, but there'll be so many that it is just going to be so challenging uh, for them to come up under all the obstacles and challenges that they're facing. And having a cohort of adults that are caring for them, able to communicate with one another, um, I think is so important. And I think that was really highlighted for me just a couple of weeks ago when, I, when you know, our office learned that one of our former youth works interns passed away. And he was someone who we thought was doing really well, was really successful, had gone into college, um, but was still so heavily burdened by the challenges of being low income, of his family you know, being homeless and transitioning through a lot of different housing. And, and, I, and even though he was in so many programs, you know, I wish I had been able to communicate you know, with some of the other folks, adults that he worked with, so that we had a broader picture of the struggles that he was going through. Um, and you know, it, 
you know, you know, obviously in retrospect, I wish that we were able to support him better if we had mm. the full knowledge of, of everything that he was going through. Um, and so I, I, I just really push on us to do that because the youth are here now. You know, they're getting older, and, and, and we just have to make it. I think it's really urgent that we're able to do that. Um, and finally, um, I know not everyone will be back at select committee, but just a request from the clerk to um, uh, send future presentations to the clerk's office um, prior to the committee hearing so that they can have all your presentations ready and up on cue. Um, but I do want to thank everyone for being here. And I also i am glad to have our commissioner here because it reminded me that it would be great to get our young people that are undocumented, have gone through all the systems to really advise us as adults on what was successful um, and not successful in, in, in working through multiple systems. And so I'm really glad the commissioner was here today, and I hope that you'll be able to give some input um, in the larger um, coordination process. So thank you. Um, and seeing uh, no further comments, um, we cannot take a motion on this item yet. And so I, I believe, um, Mr. Clerk, um, if there are no other announcements, a meeting is adjourned. Um, that's correct, Madam Chair. Just to make sure, uh, clarify, no action is taken, and this item will automatically appear on the next agenda. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. So meeting is adjourned. Thank you, everyone.